0: 1 Corinthians uh, 8, 1 through 13. Now, concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom, all, uh, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they think of the food that they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us closer to, close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who, possess, who, you who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against the members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. May God bless the reading and hearing of this word.
1: Our scriptures continue in the Gospel of Mark this morning, the first chapter still, verses 21 through 28. They, meaning Jesus and the disciples, went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as one of the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Join your hearts with me in prayer. We come to you, O Lord, asking to hear your word. But in that request to hear, you also must work in our hearts so that we can receive the message And do your will to the glory of Christ. Amen. Our passage that Chris just read from 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, verse 1, that verse ends with this sentence, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I'm going to say those words with me because if you remember nothing else of the rest of the service, I want you to remember those words from the first verse of the eighth chapter of First Corinthians. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I'll do it one more time. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If there were a sentence that we need for the living of these days, this is it. And what's wonderful about this simple statement is how it becomes even clearer and deeper when we go into the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now the background of this particular epistle is interesting because we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians in the middle of a disputation between Paul and his Corinthian detractors. In chapter five, verse nine, Paul references a previous letter that he had written in which he had given earlier instructions. So there's actually a letter to the Corinthians that came before first Corinthians. But because that one was lost to time, we refer to this as 1 Corinthians, not 2 Corinthians, and then 2 as, well, you get the whole situation. But there's obviously an ongoing conversation in which Paul drafts a letter to the Corinthian church giving them prescriptions and observations about their life in Christ and their community, and then his detractors send him a whole bunch of arguments back to which then he sits and patiently writes his response. The loss of that initial document requires us then to kind of reconstruct and figure out where it is Paul is going with this. And so he sets out in 1 Corinthians to categorically go through each of the oppositional arguments and respond to them one at a time. It begins back in the earlier chapters, starting with chapter 4. And his topics include sexual immorality, Lawsuits between believers, whether it is permissible for Christians to visit pagan temple brothels, in case you're wondering Paul's answer to that is no, how you're to behave if you're single or if you're married or if you're divorced or you're widowed. Whether or not you should be circumcised, if you were not circumcised before you became a Christian, Paul says no to that as well. And then here in the eighth chapter, he talks about a question of food that was offered to idols. Can faithful Christians eat that? Now, if you're like me, you love a good bargain, right? The other day, day before yesterday, in fact, I was at Walmart picking up scrubbing bubbles and dog treats, and I wandered past the meat counter. And there it called to me. Filet Mignon. That's Walmart Filet Mignon, but you know, nonetheless, it was deeply discounted. Why was it deeply discounted? Because the day on the package that said sell by was the same day I was in the store. So I picked up a couple of Filet Mignon steaks. Guess what we had for dinner last night? Yep. The use by, sell by date worked out pretty well for us and it was less than the price of sirloin, good deal. I I loves me some discounted beef. But that context, I want you to hold on that thought of of low-priced beef because it's near the sell-by date and jump back before refrigeration. When an animal in the ancient world was butchered, you only had a few hours to consume the meat or process it in some way. If the fresh meat was not sold by the end of that day it needed to be smoked or salted or disposed. So as the day wore on the price of the meat dropped. You weren't going to get anything for it by the end of the day so the price would get lower and lower not unlike the sell by date that was on my filet mignons from the other day. Anyone who's worked in a food pantry knows what I'm talking about. If you're fortunate enough to work in a food pantry that has a freezer, you look at the meat that you receive and it's all expired according to that sell-by date. Well, it's not bad. What it means is is that on the day that they had the sell-by date, you sharp freeze it and it is still completely consumable, as if I'd taken that steak home and put it in our freezer and we ate it at a later date. And that's exactly what Walmart would have to do. More likely than not, they would have had to just give that meat away if I wouldn't have been keen on the bargain to buy it. In any case, in the ancient world, temples were not only places of the worship of pagan deities, they were also butcher shops. The meat that was from a sacrifice would be ceremoniously used and so a portion would be burnt, some of it would be consumed by the priests, there'd be a grand procession in the taking of the life of the animal. But after all of the ritual was done, then it was put on sale in the marketplace for people to take home. Initially, the price was high. Enjoy the steaks shared by the god Apollo, or have yourself some burgers with Bacchus. And people who were faithful to those temples would say, here's an opportunity to buy dinner and make a contribution to our pagan god. Okay? As the day went on, however, and the meat became a little less fresh, the price would begin to fall. And that's where the Corinthian bargain hunters had their answers. I mean, let's admit it. The pagan gods are just statues. They're wood and marble. And the animal was sacrificed in front of, what, nothing. So the meat certainly doesn't have any cultic significance to it. So it's a good deal. Let's bring it home and let's eat it. I mean, who doesn't like discounted protein, right? Paul's response here in chapter 8, however, is thoughtful and thorough and clear. Yes, the gods are nothing, says Paul. So in reality, at the end of the day, the meat is only meat. But if you're eating and sharing it makes others uncomfortable, some of the people in our community just a little while ago used to worship at those temples. And because of the love of Christ, and the transformation of their own commitment, they put aside the many gods to follow the one god. But whenever they see that meat with the seal of the pagan deity on it, they make an association that yeah, I'm not sure this is something that I should eat. But those who said, oh, come on, it's on sale, became very dismissive of their foolishness. It's no big deal, it's not a problem, And Paul says, why are you working so hard to make a point only to increase the discomfort of those who are around you? I don't want you to be sidetracked, says Paul, by some argument over meat and pagan rituals. In fact, Paul concludes that he solves the entire problem by saying, you know what, this is why I am a vegetarian. That's how he concludes. I just don't eat meat at all, so it never comes up. Nobody ever says those green beans were offered to a pagan god. No, so I I just eat vegetables. See the logic? What arguments do you want to have, is what Paul says. Remember when you first got home from college, maybe it was your freshman year, and you had just had psychology 101. Remember that? and you'd learned about the ego, and the superego, and the id, and separation anxiety disorders. And of course, you had to come home and explain exactly to your parents how much they failed in the development of your psyche, right? More than one parent after that winter break or summer break of the first year of college says, why are we paying you to go to college? so that you can come back and tell us we're idiots? What's the point of knowing something, writes Paul, if you only use your insight to insult others, who you think are now inferior because you have greater intelligence? You become a stumbling block, or as Paul says later in chapter 13, you are being impatient. You're looking out for your own way. You're irritable. You're recording only wrongs. You rejoice in error and ignore deeper truth. You're bearing nothing. You're believing nothing. You're hoping nothing. You're enduring nothing. So say it again with me. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. There's a con- this is a convicting verse for me. In fact, in all of 1 Corinthians, this verse probably grabs me, and I guess, you know, in terms of confessions, that here's the deep one, here's the real one, this is it, because if I have a tidbit of insight or some story or information that is even slightly related to our conversation, you better believe I'm going to interrupt and reveal just how much I know about this subject. Even if that means talking over you, even if it makes me dismiss you and not listen, just so I can look marginally, or in my eyes significantly, better than you. The people who are nodding and laughing are the ones that I've worked closest with, (laughs) either on session or a committee. Don't make your heads go so up and down. This is my confession. You can affirm it however you choose. But Paul is telling us, Paul is telling me, I need a filter. That before I open my mouth, if I wish to build up, to build a stronger community, then I have to ask myself, Is what I am about to say a loving contribution? Or is it egotistical one-upmanship? When that filter is applied, I am amazed at how little I end up talking. It's a kind of question that usually leaves me speechless. Is what you're about to say a loving build-up or an egotistical puff-up? By the way, the words that are translated here as puffed up and build up literally mean windbag and home building. Knowledge creates windbags, but love builds homes. Final note from our gospel lesson, and this windbag will wrap things up. When Jesus is teaching in Capernaum, the people observe, he speaks as one who has authority, not like the scribes. Well, how did the scribes speak? They always spoke in referential terms. This thing or that thing is true because Rabbi so-and-so wrote thus-and-so. And And the opponents then would respond, ah, but you're forgetting Rabbi thus-and-such wrote this. When they spoke, it was never of their own discernment or their own experience. It was always a network of footnotes. We've had those arguments, right? I read somewhere where this expert said that you're an idiot. And don't blame me. The expert said you were an idiot. I'm not saying you're an idiot. But I thought it was important to point it out. When I was studying many years ago with Rabbi Friedman, he used to make some observation about human nature... And inevitably, somebody in our discussion group would say, is there a research study to back up what you just said? Ed respond, well, there might be a research study, and I could get you the citation. But then we just have an argument over the study's methodology. Either it makes sense to you, or it doesn't. You've had those arguments, too. Well, where did you get that information? Well, it was a study at such and such university. Yeah, but that only included left-handed people who owned hamsters. So how does this apply to me? And the entire conversation as to whether or not the initial statement made sense or built up or was useful is completely lost to all of the argument over methodology and study technique and whether or not they were trusted sources. So when people heard Jesus speak, He spoke from his experience, from his own heart. He spoke from authority, speaking openly and honestly only about the things that you truly know and are filtered from the desire to build up in love, I need to warn you, is going to trouble some unclean spirits. The windbags, the puffed up, the air blowers, they'll do anything possible to trouble your attempts to be kind, to listen, to be compassionate, to show love, to build up the household of faith. There will be opposition But the opposition is not gonna build up this house. So say it with me one more time. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Amen. Thank you for helping me with my sermon. Please stand and let us speak our confession in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He descended into heaven. He stood on the right hand. forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body.